All right, so if you had to take a guess, what percentage would you say of the New Testament was written by Luke? So what did Luke write again? Luke and Acts. Luke and Acts. That is correct. So you had to take a percentage. What percentage of the New Testament was written by Luke? All excellent guesses. Yeah. So 30%, that was a big number. So in other words, a lot of the New Testament. And that's because Acts is, has a big footprint. Luke has a big footprint. But some of you don't think that's correct. You think it's a little bit less. 26. Um, Looks like Anna's right on this one. The answer is 27.1% if you're, if you're doing verse counts. So there's about 8,000 verses in the New Testament. And Luke wrote 2,157 of those. Um, so if Luke wrote 27% of your New Testament, what percentage do you think the Apostle Paul wrote of your New Testament? We have a 50 So there's, you guys think Luke wrote a decent amount more of the New Testament. Any, any people who think otherwise? Luke, uh, or sorry, uh, Paul did 2,032 verses. So if you take all 13 epistles of Paul, that's 2,000 verses. And if you take the two books, Luke and Acts, that's 2,100 verses. And if you think about John, who wrote... The Gospel of John, and what else? First, second, third John, Revelation. So he wrote fourteen hundred verses. So those are the contenders for the you know the the largest um, footprints in the New Testament by authors. So twenty one hundred for Luke, twenty one hundred verses out of eight, about eight thousand, two thousand for Paul, and then fourteen hundred for John. So in other words, Luke and Acts is a lot of your New Testament. So if you have if you have a good, solid grasp on Luke and Acts, you know your New Testament really well. Um, yeah, so we said, we said Luke last time is giving us... He's giving us history, theology, and preaching. So history, we looked at the, uh, the first four verses, his introduction to Theophilus. And I should have made that made a stronger emphasis that um, probably very likely was a person. You know, there is a, there is a view that he's a symbolic, generic friend of God, but very likely that was an actual person. Probably the guy who funded Luke to write it, who paid the money to Luke to uh, write the gospel, so that then he could distribute it. Um, history. Um, it's also theology, so it's giving you very deep truths about God. Salvation, Jesus, what you need to do in response, what it looks like to live a life pleasing to God, all those things. And then we said it was also preaching. You, know, you can imagine God himself uh, just grabbing you by the shoulders and saying, Cortland, encouraging you, rebuking you, explaining to you. Whatever, whatever's going on in Luke, that's what God is doing to you individually as you read the Gospel of Luke. Um, so you really want to you really want to see the, the books in the Bible are all different than all the other books you read because the, the other books you read are going to be by an author who might be talking to you, maybe a great author. You know, we love our John Pipers and our 
uh, Jerry Bridges and our uh, other contemporary authors that get, speak very encouraging words to us. But in that case, it's that person talking to you, right? The difference with the Bible, what uniquely with the Bible, is it's it is there is a person there, you know, in Luke in this case, but there's also primarily God Himself talking to you in very direct terms. And you know, I said, <clears throat> and I, I acted as if it was always yelling at you, and we don't want to think of, of the Bible that, that way. Sometimes it does yell at us, but sometimes it speaks very encouraging, uh, gentle words that we need to hear. You know, when we're really discouraged about something. And all of that is part of God preaching to us. All right, so anything else I want to say by way of reminder? All right, so last time we stopped at chapter 4. So turn back to chapter 4 in Luke. We looked a good bit at verses 18 and 19 in chapter 4. And do you guys remember anything at all that I said two weeks ago about those verses? Chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. 61. Yeah, 61 verses 1 and 2. But it does relate to Isaiah. Isaiah is a big deal in your New Testament. Lots of prophecies uh, are, are, are quoted in the New Testament and pointed back uh, to Isaiah. He, he pops up all the time. All right, so verses 18 and 19. Looking at it freshly now at the beginning of class, though. So Jesus, uh, we're in Nazareth now. Um, this is the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. So he's, he's been tempted by the devil at the beginning of chapter 4. Jesus wins, in case you forgot who won that temptation battle. Uh, and then you get to verse 14. Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. So Galilee is up in the north. Jerusalem's in the south. Uh, Galilee's by the Sea of Galilee. Jerusalem, further south by the Dead Sea. Uh, you go down the Jordan River to get there. Um, and Galilee is the, is the region where Jesus uh, is spends his early years and then his early adult years. Um, but once he's anointed with the Spirit, then things are, things are different. So now this is a very public moment for him. So he goes to Nazareth, um, kind of his hometown, also where he had been brought up, as it says here. So he goes into the synagogue, as was his custom. And if it was his custom, what does it tell us? Yeah, it was, you go to, just like it's as your custom, you go to church on Sundays. Well, it was his custom to go to synagogue on Saturdays. Um, so a very normal thing for him to do. Goes into the synagogue, and by this point, he's in his 30s. He's not a young man. They've known him for decades. He's established himself as a very respectable person. It sounds funny to say about Jesus, who never sinned, but, um, you know, he would have been a, respected person in the community. And so he goes into the synagogue. Um, so he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. So he enrolled the scroll and, uh, you know, a scroll is, is uh, so he's not picking up a book, in other words. You know, it's, it's a rolled up, very long piece of parchment. Um, and the scroll of Isaiah could have been a single scroll or it could have been several scrolls that made up the book of Isaiah. So he unrolls it, and he turns to a very specific place. He could have, I mean, it's 66 chapters long. He could have gone to a lot of different places and had a lot of different messages that he was going to speak. But he went to this very specific message from Isaiah 61. And he wrote, and he read this, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And so last time I asked the question, why did Jesus pick those words? So why did, pick, why did Jesus pick those words to say? Yeah, so he's explaining himself and saying that this has been accomplished in your presence. And so when, um, which is, so in some ways it's, it's, it's uh, he's announcing the beginning of a ministry. And yet at the same time, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's, the, that's where the, the prophecy starts. And so he's saying that I'm the guy that Isaiah was talking about, who was going to have the spirit anointing me, which means poured out, right? When you anoint somebody with something, you pour out that thing on top of them. So the spirit of the Lord is upon him um, for a purpose. And then he gives an explanation of his ministry. And so if you, if you think of the, the ministry of Jesus, this is what he's doing. And so in the Gospel of Luke, he's, he's putting this very important prophecy at the beginning of Jesus' ministry to explain everything that follows. So you can really connect everything that follows to these words. All right, so we're moving. We're moving. We're going to skip almost all. No, we're going to skip all of chapter 5. We get to chapter 6. We saw the prayer moments. You get to chapter 6, verse 17. He came down with them and stood on a level place. So a level place, um, uh, in other words, a plain. And so this is called the Sermon on the Plain. And so what you have in 6.17 through the end of the chapter is a sermon, which in some ways is very similar to Matthew's sermon in Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 through 7. But in Matthew 5, he goes up on a mountain and he speaks to the people, whereas in chapter in Luke 6, he goes down into a plain and then speaks to the people. Uh, and there's other differences, and so the I think the best view on those those two moments of Jesus' ministry is those are actually two separate sermons preached in two separate locations. But it makes sense that Jesus who taught, he didn't, he didn't um, distribute his books, right? You know, here, here are my letters, here are my, here are my books. I want you all to read my books. And um, he taught, right? And he expected the people he was teaching, teaching to remember what he said. So it makes sense that he would repeat a lot of things. And in fact, a lot of things a lot of times. So once you um, go to Luke 6, verse 20, Keep your hand there and then go to Matthew 5, verse 1, and keep both of those spots open. So 5, 1, Matthew 5, 1, and then Luke 6, 20. So Joshua Smith, can you read, let's see, where do I want you to read? Can you read Matthew, the first four Beatitudes? These are called Beatitudes because uh, of that first word, blessed. And then, Anna Douglas, can you read Luke 6, 20? through 21. So if we were going to compare and contrast uh, just the section that we read, what do you guys notice? They're both, list, they're both, both listing out what, what is true of those who are blessed. Good. But what do you notice about the way that uh, Jesus addresses the poor in each of those passages? So blessed are the poor is consistent on both sides, uh, but how do, they, how do they differ after that? And, and the promise is basically the same, isn't it? That yours is the kingdom of God, yours is the kingdom of heaven. What's the subtle difference, though? The poor in spirit and then the other one just says poor. Yeah, the poor in spirit versus just the poor. Um, so just, just to think on that a, bit, a second, what, what is the difference between being poor and then being poor in spirit? What would you guys say there? So it has to do with your soul versus your bank account kind of thing. Yeah. 
I mean, that's a, that's a fine way to think of it. Um, poor in spirit, um, the, the only thing about that is you want to, poor in spirit is a good thing, it's not a bad thing. If you're poor in spirit, you're aware of your need, you're aware of your poverty, you're aware of your dependence on the Lord. Um, so you're, you want to be poor in spirit. You know, physically poor versus physically rich. I mean, generally in the Bible, you want to be physically rich, generally. Uh, but obviously, you don't, want to, you don't want the riches to corrupt you. So you may or may not want to be poor financially, but you do want to be poor in spirit. Uh, being poor in spirit is a good thing. But what's interesting about Luke is he's probably, he probably has both things in mind. Is he's talking to, Jesus is talking to his disciples, right? So he lifted up his eyes on his disciples, so he's talking to followers of him, believers in him, at least largely so. So to you who are poor, so to you followers of me who are poor. You know, he's not just saying it's good to be poor, whether or not you believe in Christ. But if you were a follower of Christ, if you're poor, you're, you're blessed. For yours is the kingdom of God. Well, what, about, what about hunger now? So blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. What does that look like in Matthew's gospel? Yeah, so you, you're hunger, hungry in both passages, but what you're hungering for seems a little bit different, right? Yeah, so you're hungering for maybe some food in the gospel of Luke. You're hungering for growth in Christ and righteousness in Matthew's gospel. But you know, he promises both that you will be satisfied. Both, both will be fulfilled. So the hungry in Luke's gospel are those who are disciples who are also maybe physically hungry. And yet the promise to both of them is that you will be satisfied. Good reminder that in heaven, you know, we will be full and satisfied in all ways. Not just, not just uh, in our souls, but not our bodies. Not just in our bodies, but on our souls, but in all ways. Bodily and in our soul, we will be satisfied. So you see, those are differences. Matthew and Luke, those are differences, but not contradictions. I mean, as you could you could go through the, the whole of, of both sermons and realize that the differences are there, but these aren't contradictions. There, you know, there's different contexts, different reasons why uh, Luke would write what he does uh, versus Matthew. Um, again, two sermons that actually happened. I think, uh, yes, they actually happened, but um, and they happened separately, uh, but with with some different uh, some real differences that are are worth are, are worth noting. All right, so that's chapter 6. We get to chapter 7. We'll do a quick touch on... So we said that uh, back in chapter 4, Isaiah's prophecy said things like, I'm going to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, set at liberty those who are oppressed, things like that. And so what we get in chapter 7, and I'm, gonna, I'm picking it up at verse 18. So John the Baptist is imprisoned. Uh, is he imprisoned? I'm sorry, he's not imprisoned yet. So John the Baptist is hearing about Jesus' ministry. He's pretty certain that Jesus is the Messiah, but he's not completely certain. Um, and so there's this, and remember, uh, John and Jesus are cousins, right? Um, and, so, and, and John's a little bit older. They've, they've grown up together. They've known each other a long time, actually, by this point. They're both in their 30s uh, by the time they get to this point. But Knowing someone is a great person is one thing. Knowing that they're the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament, well, that's different. So John, at this point, is a bit uncertain. So the disciples of John reported all these things to John, and John 
calling two of his disciples to Jesus, sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Are you the promised Messiah or is there another guy who's even greater that we should be waiting for? Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to to you saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, that very hour. So as these guys come uh, at that very moment. He healed many people of of diseases and plagues and evil spirits, and on many who were blind, he bestowed sight. And he answered them, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. So you guys see the connections there between that passage and then that prophecy back in chapter 4? That makes sense? Okay. So that's what's going on there. I'll skip the rest of those things. Jesus is doing amazing things. Parables. Calms a storm. Heals a demon. Or he heals a man with a demon, I should say. Sends out the 12. Feeding of the 5,000. So that takes us to chapter 9, verse 18. Important scene. All right, so in your Bibles, do you have a label here? Which says what? Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, another reference to um, the man Jesus modeling for us what we should be doing. Um, Interesting, he's praying alone. It's not that he doesn't pray with other people, but he does pray alone routinely in the Gospels. Now, it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked them, who did the crowd say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say, Elijah. And others, that one of the prophets of old has risen. Then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, the Christ of God. Yeah, so why might, uh, why might somebody have said, oh, that's just John the Baptist? It's not a right view, but why might someone have said, uh, oh, that guy, that's just John the Baptist? Same sort of things, maybe had some bizarre view that John the Baptist is killed and then Jesus is, is like the resurrected version of John the Baptist, some weird way that they're, they're similar. Um, John the Baptist is, is kind of the, the freak in the wilderness who dresses funny and talks funny but says powerful things and rebukes famous people. And maybe they saw Jesus as that kind of weird, but, weird guy, but you have to listen to him because he sounds so compelling. And then Elijah, who's Elijah? Yeah, pretty major Old Testament prophet comes up, pops up in First uh, Kings at the end of First Kings, and then into Second Kings. He does many astounding uh, miracles. Um, and so, in this case, if you're if you're comparing Jesus to Elijah, you're comparing Jesus to the guy who does powerful miracles. You know, he's a miracle worker. And others that one of the prophets of old has risen. So now, in this case. Still, still kind of in the prophet type of motif, except now maybe an emphasis on teaching. Uh, the prophet, the writing prophets of old um, were generally known for what they said, not their miracles. Um, it's not that they didn't ever do miracles, but they're generally known for what they actually taught. You know, they, they heard the word of God and then they proclaimed the word of God. So in that sense, Jesus is like one of the prophets of old. But all of that means that Jesus is, he's a great man, but he's still just pretty much a normal man. You know, all those guys that we read about in our Old Testament, we look at as, 
as when they're when they're great anyway. We look at them as great men, but not anything other than a man, right? We don't read about Isaiah and say, "Oh, that's that's God among us." We say, "No, that's, that's Isaiah, great man, but still a man." So it's it's good to see Jesus as special, but that's just not enough. You have to see Jesus as a lot more than that. So then he said to them, "But who do you say that I am?" And that's that's when Peter answered, "The Christ of God." And the word Christ means what? Joby, what do you think? It probably does, but maybe not at that exact spot. Yeah, so Christ Christ equals Messiah. So Christ equals Messiah equals anointed one. All right, so those three things are all, they're all synonymous. So Christ, I mean, this is the English version of it, but it's Greek, Christos. Messiah, it's the English version of it, but it's Hebrew. So the word, um, so when the, the Old Testament was translated from the original Hebrew into Greek, wherever it said Meshua, Messiah, it was translated to Christos, Christ. Um, and then both of those have to do with Christ being the anointed one. So in the Old Testament, kings and priests were anointed. Did uh, you guys do, were any of you helpers in Sunday school, children's ministry this past Sunday? So you did David and Goliath. Yeah, some of you, well, if you were this week, then you weren't last week, sorry, or two Sundays ago. Two Sundays ago, David was anointed, I think, as king. Um, but he was, uh, he was anointed by Samuel, and then he went on to fight Goliath in this amazing way. But that's because he was a king. So David was a Christ. He was, a, he was an anointed one in the Old Testament. He wasn't the anointed one, the promised anointed one coming, um, but he, wa- he was an anointed one. And priests were also anointed. So when Aaron, the high priest, started his ministry as high priest, he was anointed, um, anointed with oil. Um, so what Peter is saying here then is that the prophecies about the Christ, not just one of the Christs, one of the kings, one of the priests, the Christ in the Old Testament, uh, Peter is saying that's Jesus. This Jesus of Nazareth that we have seen and ministered with, that's the Christ of God, God's very promised son. And then, um, uh, so, so, so we start with, uh, you know, we, t- we touch on the temptations. He, he started his ministry in Galilee, and then he's been doing all these miracles and given all this teaching, and then he gets to this moment where he declares himself to be the Christ. And to this point, there hasn't been any real clear sense that Jesus is actually going to be killed. And as soon as Peter uh, declares Jesus to be the Christ. You know, he's, he's, he's gotten to the right answer. You know, wh- whatever answer he would have said before this point, now he has the right answer. And then immediately Jesus begins to talk about what's going to happen. And so in verse 21, And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So immediately he begins to talk about his crucifixion. So until... Until you understand who he is, you'll never understand his crucifixion. Um, you have to understand who, who it was that died on the cross before you can understand the benefits uh, that he achieved on the cross. And so the first thing that happens is he under- Peter, Peter gets to that place where he says he's the Messiah, and, and then Jesus begins to unpack the cross. Um, all right, transfiguration. We won't ask a question on that. Yeah, I want you guys to turn to um, the end of chapter 10. 
verse 38. Chapter 10, verse 38. So Genevieve, can you read 1038 to 42? Yeah, so this is a, this is a story that's not in, told in any other gospel, so it's unique to the gospel of Luke. And let's do a quick inductive Bible study. Do you guys know what that means? Just yell it out if you know what it means. So inductive basically means you're, that's, you're taking a text and you're pulling meaning out of it. All right, so you're going to fight with the text and pull meaning out of it. Whereas deductive, you have an idea and you kind of go to the text with that idea. So we're going to take the text and we're going to pull this out of it. So you have, with inductive Bible study, you've got three steps. Observation, interpretation, and then application. And this is, um, this is something you can do yourselves whenever you're, Whenever you really want to dig deep in a text, you can't, you can't really do this for every single passage you read in the morning because your quiet times would take forever. But when you want to really go deep in a passage, this is a great way to do that. So observation, just look at the details in the text. What is actually being said? So in this case, what do we pick up? Mary and Martha, what happens? What's said? What do you notice? Yeah, so contrast between Mary and Martha. Definitely a Martha versus Mary situation. You got the listening, you said, and you got the working, Martha. Any other details you want to poke at, pull out from this observational stage? Yeah, that's a great point. So she, she's not just working, working, she's also distracted. Okay, so there's a humble posture, we might say. And do we, are we, all right, so that's, so good. Now let's go to this next st- step, which is interpretation, which, yeah, so what would be, a, in this case, an interpretation type element? This is where, when you're, when you're doing your study, you, you kind of go outside the text. What are some things I need to know to interpret this well? And so in this case, it doesn't fit perfectly. Um, but in some ways, in some ways, who Jesus is is kind of the big deal. Uh, so if you think about uh, what are several things, we're not, not everything, but what are several things? So, you know, we're in chapter 10, right? 1038 to 42. What are several things that we know now are true of Jesus based on the first 10 chapters of Luke? Just a few things. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty big one. Yep, he's the son of God. He's a man. That is true. Yep, his life has certainly proven that. Yeah, one more. Uh, sinless. He's not just pretty good, but he is sinless. So in other words, you, you know, th- that's, that's something you would have just known automatically as you're reading the story. Uh, because it's a story about Jesus in a gospel, so you would have known, you would you wouldn't even have consciously thought all these things. But what that means then is that it's it's really unfortunate <laughs> that Mary is working and distracted. Sorry, Martha, that Martha is working and distracted because of who the guy is who is you know sitting in her living room, um, and it's and that's why Mary has chosen the good portion. You know if. There's a lot of other people that could have been sitting in her living room where it wouldn't have been so terrible that, that Martha was working and distracted. But this is Jesus, Son of God, uh, came as a servant, sinless, and we could have added a lot more things there, right? Um, the, the astounding uh, birth with angels and prophecies, we could have added a lot more things. And so for, for, for Martha then to be distracted is a real... That's very unfortunate for her. And so it's so when Jesus says what he says, which is, what's, what's his punchline statement at the end about Mary? Yeah, she's chosen the good portion. So you don't, even, you don't have to wonder, which person should I want to be like? You should be like the person who has chosen the good portion. 
you know, when Jesus says the good portion. Um, all right, so that's going on. And now we get to application. Um, it's good to understand a text, but in the end, we want to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Um, and so when you get to application, what do we do with this? What are some ways that we can actually apply this passage? So you, you, know, you guys are in a different position than Martha and Mary in the sense that uh, the man, Jesus, is not going to walk through your door and stay for dinner. And in which case, that's a tricky situation. Well, do I prepare the dinner and then, or do I just go and sit in the living room and so we don't have any food or what do I do here? Um, anyway, the, the man, Jesus, is not going to come into your living room, right? But clearly we're supposed to apply this passage. It's, it's preserved for us for a reason. There's a good portion. What's, you know, in a sense, what's the good portion for us? What does it look like to choose the good portion? Yeah, great. That's a, that's a good way to say that. Um, so we'll say something like, listen without distraction and somebody else. Yeah. How do you do that? Yeah, he has to be on the list. Even if your list has a lot of other things on it, he has to be on the list. That's right. Um, don't be too distracted for God. Um, but what does it look like uh, in our situation, in our day, to listen to God and to um, spend time with God? And simple, straightforward things, nothing super complicated. Yeah, Bible and prayer is always um, has to be part of the mix. There's other things you can add to it, but the Bible and prayer. Um, Bible and prayer is something you do alone with God. And even though you need to go to church, you need to go to all the, the ministry meetings you're going to go to because you need fellowship, you need other Christians to encourage you. But sprinkled in there, you need pulling away to be alone with God, um, you know, just like Jesus did. He pulled away to be alone with God. If he needs it, how much more do we need it? All right, well done. Good, guys. So that's inductive Bible study. A little reminder of what that's like. So when we, we get to chapter, uh, I should have hit this verse, but um, in chapter 9, actually, before we got to that thing I spent so much time on, 9.51, so he's, uh, uh, Peter has declared him to be the Christ. Uh, then there's the transfiguration where he um, he is revealed in, I can't say all of his glory, but his, but he's revealed in, in some way in, in his glory. Moses, Elijah, and Jesus are there. The voice speaks from heaven. This is my chosen, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. So amazing things are happening. Another prophecy about the cross. But then you get to 951. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so 951 is a real shift in Luke's gospel. So he's been hovering. You know, I told you, I told you last time it had a north to south structure. This is not an exact perfect map that you could use to uh, find your way from Galilee to Jerusalem. However, so Galilee in the north, uh, and this is the Sea of Galilee. We'll just call this the Sea of Galilee. So... I think Nazareth is here, and Capernaum, uh, where Jesus lives for a time, is there. Um, I think the Decapolis, where the demoniac is, is over here. Anyway, lots of stuff happened around Galilee. And then 951, 
the time, his, the time for his departure drew near, and so he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so for the rest of Luke's gospel, then he's heading south to Jerusalem. He, then he's in Jerusalem where he's crucified, buried, and, re- and resurrected. Um, but he's not crucified until uh, 23, right? Pretty sure it's Luke 23. So you have a lot of chapters of this, uh, of this traveling, although the... The triumphal entry is in, pretty sure it's Luke 19. Uh, triumphal entry is in Luke 19. So lot, anyway, a lot of chapters of traveling to Jerusalem. And as he's traveling, he's, he's doing more miracles. He's doing more teaching. And the, and the teaching that he does in this block of text is a lot of the, the famous parables that we think of connected to Luke are in that, in that stretch. And we'll turn to one of those now, which is the lost the lost parables. So turn to chapter 15. Yeah, so again, we're kind of in the middle of the travel, the travel narrative, it's sometimes called. And Jesus is teaching, and I should I should read verses one and two, chapter 15, verses one and two. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So in this case, uh, we've got some good guys and bad guys. Who are the bad guys and who are the good guys in that little description there, verses 1 and 2? Pharisees, bad. Right, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Who are the good guys? Yeah, sinners and tax collectors. And why are they good? They do rely on Jesus, that is true. But they're, they're drawing near. That's the key thing at this point. They're drawing near to hear him. So they're like Mary in this situation. So they're, I mean, Luke is honest. These are tax collectors and sinners. These aren't the cream of the crop in terms of society. But they're the ones who are drawing near to Jesus. And then you have the Pharisees and the scribes who are the cream of the crop in that society. I mean, better than, certainly better than any Roman um, political figures. So the Pharisees and the scribes are the cream of the crop. And yet... They're at this point set up as the, um, the nasty grumblers. This man receives sinners and eats with them. And then verse 3, so he told them this parable. All right, so, so in other words, you just want to see the setup. So you've got the tax collectors and sinners drawing near. You've got the Pharisees, scribes grumbling because Jesus associates with sinners. And so then Jesus speaks to those people these parables that follow in chapter 15. In other words, you want to keep that in mind as we read the parable. All right, so I'm going to read, so I'm going to read the, the parable of the, of the prodigal son, verse 11 through 32. All right, so pay attention. Don't fall asleep. Don't get distracted. Don't be like Martha. Be like Mary. All right, so Jesus said, uh, there was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of, the, of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. All right, so what are all the ways that this, uh, this younger son is really terrible, just terrible? 
Yeah, he didn't ask for a loan. He didn't ask for money. He asked for my inheritance, which, yeah, the, uh, the inheritance is what you receive when your parent dies. And basically what he's saying is you're, you're, you're of no value to me alive. I don't care about you. I don't care about spending time with you. I don't care about you know, living, living out our life together. I just want the property that's owed me. So he gets that, and then he, and why else is he terrible? He squandered it. He didn't go invest it and make himself into some great man in some other city. He squandered it in reckless living. And we don't, we can, we don't need details on that. We know what that looks like. Um, there's a lot of ways to spend your money recklessly and end up with nothing. And it says he spent everything. And then it got worse because then a famine came and he had nothing. And so where does the, his bad life get worse? <laughs> uh, that's, that's a great point, yes. For a Jewish audience to, to have to uh, concern yourself with pigs would have been offensive. But he's jealous of the pigs. I mean, that's, that's in a pretty bad place. I wish I was a pig. Look, at what, look what they get to eat. Yeah, the, all the scraps from the table that is just thrown into a big bowl. Uh, that's what I wish I had to eat. That's how, I mean, that's, that's what hunger does, right? Hunger gets you to a place where you'll eat almost literally anything. And so he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But then in verse 17, there's a, there's a turnaround. So when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. So what is, uh, what is really good and impressive at that, with that turning point in verses 17 to 19, the beginning of, yeah, 17 to the beginning of 20? He's off on some things, that's true, but we're, what's, what's good and impressive about, the, about those words? Yeah, very, very clearly, I have sinned against heaven and before you. You know, it's, it's one thing when you, um, when you really hurt someone, you mess up, and you think of it as just you and that person, the, the, the horizontal level. But the thing with sin is it's not just against another person. Your sin is also against God. You've, you've broken his law. So it's good that you, you know, apologize and you ask for forgiveness from the person, but you, but you might have some, someone else to deal with, and that's God himself. And so this, this son in this case acknowledges both of those. I've sinned against heaven, the vertical, and before you. And he goes so far as to say, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Whatever requirement I need to meet to be worthy of being your son, I have completely failed. I have fallen so far short. And, and of course, that's, that's true at the horizontal and the vertical level. So at the horizontal level, I'm no longer worthy to be called son of my earthly father. And if I look upward to heaven, I'm no longer worthy to be called a son of God, for sure, a child of God, for sure. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So that's Jesus setting up the scene. And then he, you know, he delivers the surprise conclusion. So the, the, the deadbeat, horrible son that comes to his senses arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Have any of you guys ever seen your father run to you? 
in any context whatsoever. Maybe in sports, <laughs> he's running after you. <laughs> but running to you, that's, that is, that is a, an incredibly rare thing. Um, and obviously there's not a lot of situations where that even makes sense, you know, where, where I would run to Kirsten for some, for some reason. I go to Kirsten often and express affection, but running to her, that would have to be a very unique situation. Um, I have one memory of my dad uh, where I was probably, I don't know, nine or 10. And I was playing in the backyard at my great uncle's house. And there was an alley that ran behind the house. And this pickup truck was, was very slowly riding on this alley. And, you know, I did what, of course, any, any boy would do in that situation. And I ran on the back of the pickup and jumped up on the, on the bed of the pickup. And, you know, so I'm just, dri- I'm just driving along in this pickup. And my dad just burst out of the house. Uh, and was, you know, Daniel, Daniel, get off. And, um, and that wasn't, I, mean, I, I don't remember being punished. I don't remember him being angry. I think he was really worried. I think he was really concerned. This, this could end badly. And so he was running after me to, to help me. Um, and in my life, that's the only memory I have of my dad running after me in a positive way or in any way whatsoever, actually. So all that is to say, don't, don't overlook that detail because it's kind of a big detail. And in, in, in a society like this culture where the father was such a, a stately, important, regal, uh, powerful, powerful, powerful figure, the dad would not lower himself to just run after a kid like that. But the father did. He felt compassion. He, he ran after his son son and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. So what do we learn about the father and the son at this point? We'll put a pause there. What do we learn about the father and the son at this point? Yeah, quick to forgive in a very, uh, ab- ab- I don't know, abundant way, if you can say that. Um, it's, it's magnanimous. It's generous. Um, he doesn't just say, it's okay, son. I'm just, I'm just glad you're home. He could have said that, and the story would still be a great story. But, but he just goes on and on and on. Um, the best robe, or put a ring on his hand shoes on his feet. Uh, we're going to have a, a banquet in his honor um, because this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. So, and, he, and, and of course, that's after embracing him, kissing him, running after him. It is just a, a massive um, uh, undeserved response by the father. And Obviously, Jesus is telling us what God the Father is like when we turn, when we turn away from our sin and turn to God. But who is he talking to? Who is Jesus telling these parables to? Yeah, not only the Pharisees. So he, he was talking to tax collectors and sinners. So tax collectors and sinners would definitely have their ears pricked when he's talking about that deadbeat son, right? And they would be saying, wow, God is like that. There's hope for me. But he's also, Jesus is also talking to the Pharisees and scribes who are grumbling about what kind of person Jesus is. So you want to keep the Pharisees and scribes in mind as we read this, the final 
scene of the story. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But the son was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And the father said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. What is Jesus telling those scribes and Pharisees who were grumbling at the beginning? Yeah, there, it's a, it is a rebuke. It is a rebuke of them that, that where, the, where the older son, the Pharisees and the scribes, should have been celebrating that the tax collectors and sinners were coming to Jesus to hear Jesus. They should have been celebrating. If they really understood the Old Testament, they would have been celebrating that the Messiah is here and he is welcoming sinners and tax collectors to him. And yet, that older son, or those, uh, the Pharisees and tax collectors were instead acting like the older son, bitter, angry, resentful, feeling entitled. They felt like, hey, we've, we've done everything right. You know, our entire lives we've done everything right, and yet you never rewarded us. You never blessed us. So it's kind of a, it's a, two, it's a two-way rebuke. So it, Jesus is rebuking the Pharisees and scribes because, because they're missing the joy of the tax collectors and sinners coming to Jesus, but also the Pharisees and tax collectors, if they truly loved God, and if they were truly faith-filled and righteous people, they would have God. And if you have God, you have everything. So you don't need a, you know, a calf, a young goat, sorry. You don't need a, a young goat before you have everything. You have God. You have everything. You have a right relationship with God. You should be celebrating the fact that you have a close relationship with the Father. But instead, you're, you don't care about what you have with the Father, and you're bitter about the this younger son who suddenly has a, a close relationship with the father. So it is, it's a, it is a massive rebuke. It's a subtle rebuke, but it's a massive rebuke. All right, it's 10.15. So how do we finish this gospel? Uh, go to 23, chapter 23, verse 39. And so we're trying to pick up some things that are unique to Luke that the other Gospels do not have. Uh, and 23 is the crucifixion scene. So the, lots, of, lots of what you read about in the crucifixion parallels what you see in the other Gospels, but not this part. So remember Jesus is cruci- crucified between two criminals, right? Two thieves. Um, so in the other Gospels, those thieves are presented as mocking Jesus. Um, and it, and in a sense, they were. So if one of the thieves is mocking Jesus, then the thieves are mocking Jesus, right? So it's not a contradiction to what we read here. However, we get this unique thing in, in Luke. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, railed at the other criminal, saying, are you not the Christ? Sorry. Um, so one of the criminals who were, who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? 
And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Jesus said to that thief, Truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Today you'll be with me in paradise. So two thieves are crucified with Jesus. One mocks him and one calls out to him for salvation. One thief receives that salvation. One thief receives his condemnation, presumably. He doesn't repent. He doesn't turn, he doesn't turn to Christ. But that thief who is given salvation, whatever had happened before in his life is, is irrelevant. I mean, it's, it's going to come up you know, in the day of judgment. That's true. But there's another sense in which it's irrelevant. The fact is he turned to Christ. And because he turned to Christ, even at that last moment of his life, today he would be with Christ in paradise. His body would be lifeless on the cross, right? There would come a time later that day when his body would be lifeless on the cross, but his soul, his soul would be with Jesus in paradise. So, uh, you know, someone has said that, you know, one thief was saved to give us hope, but only one thief so that we might, so that we might be warned. And then there's more great stuff in, in Luke's gospel, but we're out of time. All right, thanks, guys. So Acts part one is next time. So up, I forget where we broke it, but Acts 1 through 15, I don't remember where. So 1 through 12, Acts 1 through 12. So see you in a couple weeks. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. You are welcome. You got a 20. So good job. <laughs>